Well, I figure since we've had our first measurable snow and we're past Halloween that the official Christmas shopping season is upon us, right? I know for some of you, you've spent all year like preparing and purchasing. Others like me, we were good under pressure, right? So like December 20th is kind of the time for me to start thinking about those shopping items. But you know, it's an age long question. What do you want for Christmas, right? I think we can all agree that Walter McCarty and the Purple Aces, they got Christmas early this past week, right? Wow, man. And I know we're just getting to know each other, but you already know I'm a diehard UK basketball fan. So I just want to say in front of all of you, congratulations, Purple Aces. It pains me no uh, expense to say that. Uh, I wish it was in my team that you guys would have beat. I'm just glad we don't have to play you again all season, I don't think. So you know if they would have beat Duke, I'd be wearing a U of E shirt today, okay? So just go out on that, but... You know, how do we know what a person wants for Christmas? I mean, I have a friend whose son had a three-page, single-spaced Christmas list that he presented to his parents with all of his heart's desires, you know? I mean, when I was a kid, what you did is you got the Sears catalog and you paid hours of just going page by page by page, picking out what you wanted. And some parents would just rip it out of the catalog and say, Merry Christmas, kid, you know? That's kind of how it worked, but... You know, I don't know how you crack this code, but one thing that does seem to help is like if you're a parent and you want to know what your kid wants or if there's someone on your list, you know, just listen to what they talk about. Listen to what they bring up a lot. It kind of starts to separate the, the, you know, the, the wants from the, the desires. It really, what a person's heart focuses on or, or fixates or pursues tells us what matters most to them. And that's what we're going to look at today for a little bit, this, this idea of pursuit. I mean, the, there's a lot of synonyms for the word pursue. There are these words like uh, chase or follow or trail or go after. The idea of pursuit implies a swiftness or simply a, a sense of urgency. You've already had the opportunity to look at the text from, for today's Sermon on the Mount passage, but turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 7. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say as he again kind of unpacks how to have this flourishing life, a life that is life to the fullest, as he, said, he came to bring us. You know, recently we looked at a couple of thoughts from Jesus, like how to pursue eternal things, to, to treasure things in heaven, not here on earth. Our mission partner, Jay Greer from Japan, working with Mustard Seed, he, he challenged us to focus on God's kingdom first and not just the earthly kingdom or the things we'd try to keep our arms around. And last weekend, Andrew Bondurant, he really challenged us to use discernment and also to, to think about accountability in our decision-making as well as in our responses. And today, what we want to look at what Jesus has, he's given us these three action words, strong action words, ask seek and knock. And I think they lead to what this pursuit of God is really all about. As we listen to Jesus' words, I, I hope that you'll hear some questions we need to answer as well as some takeaways that Jesus has for us. And so the first question I want us to answer today is this, does prayer really make a difference? I mean, I'm sure we're all in church and we'd say, yes, we should pray. But I'm asking a deeper question of all of us today. Do we really believe that prayer makes a difference? I think when we look at Jesus' words, he begins to answer that question for us. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7 in verse 7. He says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. 
And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. When we read these words of Jesus, I think we're challenged to pray persistently. Jesus addresses how we pray, and he seems to acknowledge this progression or this continuation. He implies that there's a building process in prayer, almost an increased intensity with also an increased result. He tells his disciples, ask, seek, and knock. Other translations add some extra words. They say, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Or another one says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. There's this this persistence that Jesus is speaking of. Jesus does not promote a one and done approach when it comes to prayer. His disciples were people who, who lacked faith because they wanted immediate results from their prayers. But Jesus describes a persistence, a continuation. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And he describes in his book what he calls fuse lighting prayers. And he describes what happens in Norway when they go to demolish an old mine. They go through the mine and they draw small holes in the rock wall and they insert these explosive devices and then light the fuse. And what happens, the fuse lighting is really easy and the result is immediate. And Tim Keller says that that kind of describes how most of us approach our prayer. We kind of want it, you know, quick and over and wow, right? But Tim Keller says that's not what really prayer is about. If we believe in the power of prayer and the wisdom of God, We'll have a patient prayer life, not an impatient prayer life. This is what Keller says. He says this, we must avoid extremes of either not asking God for things or thinking that we can bend God's will to our will. We must combine tenacity in our prayer life, a striving with God, with deep acceptance of God's wise, all-knowing will, whatever it is. Luke parallels Jesus' words recorded by Matthew in Luke chapter 11, and prior to him quoting what Jesus has said, he records a story that Jesus uses to drive home the point. It's found in Luke 11, verse five. Look at it here on the screen, it says this. Jesus is talking, he says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at night and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Suppose the one inside answers, Hey, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of his shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. A picture of persistence. Now, now don't be mistaken. God does not need us to pray more persistently for him to hear us or for him to answer us for that matter. Matthew 6, verse 8, Jesus has always said, already said that God knows what we need before we even ask him. You could say that this persistence is really for us. It's about our faith. It's about our dependence. It's about our spiritual formation. It's about us desiring and pursuing God, increasing our relationship with him. I think you could also say it's for God because God desires to be pursued. He wants us to depend on him. He desires communion with us. And it also reveals our heart to him. And I think that's why Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. 
A parallel could be given to marriage. I mean, my wife and I have been married almost 25 years now, and I still need to pursue her, maybe even greater than I did before she said yes to marry me. You've probably heard the story about the woman who's complaining about her husband. She said, he never tells me that he loves me anymore. To which the man quickly replied, woman, I told you I love you when I married you, and if it changes, I'll let you know. Now, that's not great uh, advice for marriage, okay? And it, it probably should not also be the way that we approach God. Jesus is instilling hope and confidence, encourage and motivation to his disciples with this teaching. Their skill in praying is not as important as their character or their consistency in prayer. God answers prayer. They will receive, we will find, the doors will be opened to us. We simply gotta keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. N.T. Wright says this, for most of, all the pro most of us, the problem is not that we're too eager to ask for the wrong things, the problem is that we're not nearly eager enough to ask for the right things. You know, as a church, we have tried to grow in our focus on prayer and our persistence in prayer this entire year. I hope that if you've been worshiping with us over the past year, you've noticed that there have been deliberate moments in our worship services where we've sought God's heart through prayer. Moments where we've paused everything else to pray. Sounds like a novel idea, right? As a church, right? One of the things we should do, right? But we've been more intentional, more committed to praying corporately as, as well as privately. Since arriving this summer, I've been challenging our elders as well as our leadership team to fast one day a week and for us to pray some extreme prayers. And we've passed these prayers out to the rest of our staff, to many of you probably have received these prayer requests. And the first prayer request has been this, God, would you bring clarity and unity around what your mission is, what your vision and strategy is for your church, Crossroads? This is God's church. And we want his heart and his plan to be played out as we follow him and as he leads us into the future. I've got good news. I really believe that God has answered that prayer. He's continued to show us what he's up to in our midst and also what our next steps are. And so next weekend in our weekend services, we've named next weekend Vision Weekend. And we wanna share with you just what God is laying on our hearts into the direction of his church. I hope you'll be present. Also next weekend during Vision Weekend, we will affirm the 2020 budget. We'll also affirm two new uh, elder candidates that we're proposing. If you want more information about Vision Weekend or those, the budget or those candidates, you can go to cccgo.com vision or right out in the atrium at the Connection Center. There's some material you can pick up. How can you and I apply what Jesus is saying about this persistent prayer life in our own lives? I'll give you two suggestions, two ideas. The first one is this. I'd encourage you and I to create a prayer list. Write specific things that you are praying about to God. Write them down, be specific, even date them. More important, I would encourage you to also make a list of the things that God has answered, the prayers he has answered. Uh, Andrew Bondurant told me this past week about uh, something about his dad's life. His dad passed away a couple years ago and Andrew received 18 years worth of his dad's prayer journal. And in those journals, there were over 8,500 prayer requests that his dad had written out asking God, praying persistently for. Even cooler than that, that Bill recorded 8,000 answers to prayer over that period of time. You want your faith to grow? 
You want to experience this flourishing life? Do you want the life that God has, has, has given Jesus to bring us? I'd encourage you to be persistent in prayer. What are you praying for right now? How long have you been praying for it? Do you even remember asking God for it or about it? Has he answered some prayers? Don't miss what God has already done, what he is doing as you continue to be persistent in praying about what is on your heart next. Second thing I would encourage all of us to do is to always pray for God's will to be done in our life. We need to ask him for discernment. We need to pray his will be done and not ours. I think we need to seek the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Does prayer matter? Yes. Through our persistence in prayer, we draw closer to the heart of God. And I think his heart becomes, our hearts become more like his as we do. He hears our prayers and he's promised to provide our needs. That leads me to the second question I think we have to wrestle with today is that, is this, can you and I trust God? I mean, our license plate here in Indiana says, in God we trust. Our monetary bills say, in God we trust. But it's a, but it's a deeper question. Do we really trust God? Jesus continues his teaching in Matthew 7, and I think he answers that we can trust God. Look at verse 9. It says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Those interesting verses are filled with some comparisons and contrasts, like bread and stone, fish and snake, evil and good, and our earthly father compared and contrasted with our heavenly father. I mean, many of us in this room are parents and the majority of parents wants to, want to do what is right for their children, what's good for them. And Jesus says, our heavenly father is filled with goodness. He gives good gifts to his children and that's a promise. What's required of us, his children? Well, for us to pursue expectantly, believing that God is good, believing that he wants to give us what we need and that we can trust him for that. We're drawn to this parallel between what Jesus describes as our earthly father and our heavenly father. And I know that some of you might say, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't know my earthly father. He's an awful person. He didn't provide for us. In fact, he mistreated us. He hurt us. He abandoned us. And if that's your experience, I want you to know that our Heavenly Father is so much different. Our Heavenly Father is perfect. He's forgiving. His love is unconditional. It's real and it's true. Our Heavenly Father cares for us. He creates and sustains us. He orders, he listens, he provides, he guides, he disciplines, he protects, he saves, he reconciles. He can be trusted. He's good. He's worthy of our pursuit. And while our earthly fathers should emulate the character of our Heavenly Father, we can't let their image distort his. Who God is as our Father, it really shapes who we are and how we act. And I think that's what the real point of what Jesus is saying here, that we have a, a heavenly father that can be trusted. Denzel Washington played in a movie called Fences. He played the character of Troy Maxson, who was a father of a teenage son named Corey. Now I need to let you know if you've seen the movie or if you haven't, it is not a display of what good fatherhood looks like. 
But Denzel knows his responsibility as a father. And somewhere in the movie, uh, Troy says to his, or Corey says to his father, Dad, how's come you never liked me? Troy said, like you, boy? Who says I've got to like you? Don't you eat every day? Don't you have a roof over your head? Don't you have clothes on your back? Why do you think that is? Corey said, because you like me? Troy says, like you? You about the biggest fool I've ever seen, boy. It's my responsibility. A man's got to take care of his family. You're my son. You're my flesh and blood. That's why I take care of you. I wonder about your relationship with your heavenly father. You sometimes wonder, like, is God going to come through? Do you sometimes wonder if God likes you? Let me dispel any doubt in your mind. God does like you. He doesn't provide for you just because he has to or it's his responsibility or even because he likes you. He does it because of his undying love for you. He longs to pursue you and he longs for you to pursue him. So about these gifts that God has promised to provide, how can we be sure that God will provide us what we need? I don't think we need to look any further than what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 31. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all as a savior, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What a beautiful verse. I mean, we should be motivated and compelled by the promise of our heavenly father. As Jesus claims, we have to seek and we have to knock and we have to ask. Jonathan Pennington says this, the disciples are given a straightforward invitation to seek God to meet their needs with confidence based on the invitation to relate to God, not as a mere omnipotent deity, but as a good and caring father. Jesus tells his disciples that that we can approach God in confidence. Our God is approachable. He is waiting patiently for us to pursue him. And we can do that with with good expectations because he's promised to provide our needs and he's trustworthy. In 2013, the Harvard Business Review conducted a study on gift cards. They must have a lot of time on their hands, I guess. But what they found is 73% of consumers have either purchased a restaurant gift card or a gift card to a department store. What they also found, according to the Journal of State Taxation, is that the typical American home has $300 of unused gift cards just laying around. Some of those have already been thrown out accidentally or misplaced or even just partially used. If you add all that up, between 2005 and 2011, $41 billion of gift cards have gone unused. You feel better about what you gave your mother-in-law for uh, Christmas last year? That, you know, that gift card's still probably sitting around regardless of where it was intended to be used. I kind of wonder if that's how God feels. I mean, God gave his only son. God's promised to meet our daily needs. And yet it seems like sometimes we're too busy, distracted, or don't have the faith enough to ask and keep on asking to seek and keep on seeking, to knock and let the door be open to us and for us. A.W. Tozer says this, genuine prayer is about a passion for God and an obsession with entering into his presence. We're summoned to enter. We have an invitation. And I, I would encourage all of us to consider, are we actually pursuing God? Are we actually leaning into God's 
promises. Are we taking his promises to heart and pursuing him with confidence? How can we grow in that? Well, I think the first thing is to really view God as our father. Maybe you don't trust him because he seems distant. Your relationship with God can be strengthened by how you address him. He is your loving father. He's your caring daddy and he has promised to provide your needs. And even though we should always approach our heavenly father with reverence, we can also be intimate with him and be dependent upon him. The other thing I'd encourage all of us to do to grow in our expectancy of God is to put him first. God needs to be front and center in our lives. And I think sometimes we approach it a little bit wrong. We kind of view God as the number one item of our to-do list. And it's admirable that he's number one, but it's really quickly to, quick to move to number two, which might be our family, and three, which might be work, and four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, the list goes on. We kind of do God and then move on. That's how some of us approach Sunday morning. I did God, now I'll just get on with the rest of my life. And that's not really what Jesus died for, my friends. We probably should view God and our relationship with him as the hub of a wagon wheel, that center point that keeps it connected and that provides strength to all the spokes. And so every aspect of our life is more like a spoke coming out of the center of that wagon wheel. Like it's our, our family and our job and, and our hobbies and anything else about life or just a spoke on the wheel. And, and God is the center of all of that. He gives purpose and direction, strength to our lives. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, we can find God when we seek him with all of our heart. There's one last question I think we want to look at today. It's, it's right there in the context of this passage. It's this question, how do we love others? I mean, if you've read through the Bible, any page, it, it, you kind of see love jump off of it. But I'm asking us a question, how do we love What's the manner to our love for others? Look what Jesus says in verse 12 of Matthew 7. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That statement is commonly known by many people as the golden rule. And scholars describe this phrase as an uh, aphorism. It's a brief saying or phrase that addresses an opinion or makes a statement of wisdom. Usually uses flowery language. It's a proverb. It's often passed down from one generation to generation. It's usually memorable. It takes a lesson and makes it really plain. This was not likely the first time that Jesus' disciples had heard this phrase because it was very common in antiquity. Uh, both Jews and Greeks taught this principle of doing for others what you would want people to do for you. In fact, Christians and non-Christians have kind of centered their life off of this principle. The golden rule is probably one of the most powerful or recognizable parts of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It demonstrates the posture of how Jesus' followers are to relate to other humans. I think it's more of a principle to follow than a promise to hold on to. Pennington says this, the golden rule is not as much as a rule, but a vision. It can be better described as the golden vision. It's an invitation to virtue by a growing vision of how to relate to other people. I think within the context of the previous verses, it seems like Jesus is saying that we should love proactively. You see, our prayers and our pursuit of God must change the way that we relate to other people. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? 
And he quickly responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the NLT records Jesus saying this, the second is equally important. And Matthew 12 records it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is really how we want to be loved. We want to be pursued. We want to be cared for. We want to be cherished. Our love for others should reflect that in proactivity. It should be intentional. When Jesus was asked, well, who is my neighbor? He chose to tell a a story again. And this story focused a person who was known as a Samaritan. We've said he's a good Samaritan based on the way he loves proactively. And Jesus tells the story. There was a man who was traveling down a road. He was attacked. He was beaten. He was robbed and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And two people passed by, one a priest and another religious leader. And they didn't even acknowledge his existence. They just kept on going. Probably had something really important to do. But Jesus says there was a person, a Samaritan, who saw this person alongside the road and stopped. He went down and bandaged his wounds. He cared for him. He took him to a place where he could stay for the night, paid all the bills and promised to come back and take care of him when he returned on the journey. And Jesus says that that person was a Samaritan. And the significance of that is because the man laying in the ditch was a Jew. And to people listening to Jesus' story, they knew that Jews hated Samaritan and Samaritans hated Jews. And Jesus made the point. This is what it looks like to love someone the way you would want to be loved. This is what a good Samaritan does. They're proactive. They take the first step. You know, we inherently desire what's good for ourselves, what we want, how we want to be loved. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's human nature. The thing is, we should let that direct how we love others first. That's what it looks like to be selfless, not selfish. What if we loved our spouse the way we wanted to be loved? What if we loved our children the way we wish we would have been loved? What if we treat our coworker the way that we wish we were treated as a coworker? What if we treated our neighbor the same way we wish we were treated as a neighbor? And what if we didn't wait for them to take the first step? What if you and I decided to step out first? What if we decided to, to love them even if We're not loved the same way back. That would fulfill what Jesus is saying is the golden vision. I mean, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. The way we love, my friends, is the paramount expression of God's reign in our lives. So how do we live out this golden rule, this golden vision? Well, I think, first of all, it comes by proactively treating other people with love. We need to notice and respond We need to see something and do something. We need to be the first person who steps out. Call that person that we've been waiting for them to call us. Take the first step. I told my mom recently, I'd like to buy a phone that she has because she'll always say, I haven't heard from you for so long. You never call me anymore. I don't know what's going on in your life. And I was like, mom, I didn't know your phone only received calls. You could actually make calls with that thing. And maybe you would be more informed about my life, right? Sorry, I digress, but what was I saying here, okay? <laughs> I think you get the point. We, we, we need to be proactive. Be the one who calls. Don't wait for somebody else to call. Love the way you want to be loved. Second of all, I think consider how it is that you'd want to be treated. We should love others the way we want to be loved. We live in such a divided world where everybody's so easily offended, it makes me sick. 
We're kind of waiting for others to grow up or just shut up. But I think what Christ is calling us to do is show up. Show up with a proactive love that that meets the needs of others. This past summer, I went to the Global Leadership Summit. One of the teachers there was Basma St. John. She's had a pretty cool experience uh, vocationally. She led Uber and she also was involved with Apple as the global consumer marketing director. She was talking about culture and she said a couple things that caught my attention. The first thing is that culture is everyone's responsibility. She also said that culture in an organization starts in the cubicle, not the C-suite. I thought that was very insightful. But she made a statement that really maybe captures this idea of proactivity and the step we should take. She says this, that diversity is inviting someone to the dance. Inclusion is inviting that person to dance. You know, aren't you glad that God didn't wait for us to ask for a savior? He knew our sin. He knew our greatest need. And before we even ask, he responded by wrapping himself in human flesh, becoming human, a servant, even to death, Philippians says, even death on a cross. My friends, if we want to experience life to the fullest, then we must pursue God as if our life depends on it. What what kind of life is God calling us to? It's a life of righteousness. It's a life of holiness. It's a life of obedience, but it's a flourishing life. A life to the fullest is how Jesus describes it. It's a life that's filled with good gifts that our good God provides to us and we can trust him. What he's calling us to is to pray, to pursue, to love with a growing and greater intensity. I want us to make sure before we leave though, that this flourish, this, this pursuing life, this flourishing life is not something that we earn. It is something we pursue, but it's something we receive from God. Isn't it incredible that our pursuit of God actually just meets him as he pursues us? It's like we're taking one step and he's already taken a hundred. I think that's why John says it this way. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loves us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. It's not by human effort. It's not by following a set of rules of do's and don'ts. It's about pursuit. Jesus asked us to follow him. Jesus pursues us like that one lost sheep that's away from the 99 that are safe. And Jesus stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. And he wants to come in and have fellowship with us. So my friends, let's pursue God as if our lives actually depend on it. Would you pray with me? Well, God, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you that there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up. There's no door that you won't break down, kick down, coming after me. And God, it's because that you've pursued us that we want to ask, seek, and knock in pursuit of you. Because we trust you. You're a good God. You're a great father. You know how to give good gifts to your children. And so God, we just want to receive, not selfishly, but dependently. And God, because you're a good God, it gives us confidence to ask, seek, and knock. Because you're a good God, God, we want to have fellowship with you and communion with you. And God, because you're a good God, 
We want to rely on you and trust you to provide our every need. That's why we ask. God, that's why we seek. That's why we knock. So God, would you help us not just be hearers of this word, but be doers, people who are obedient to what you're calling us to, and that we would step up, we would show up as a conduit of your love in all kinds of places. And God, that as we've received love from you, we would give that same kind of love to a world that so desperately needs it. And God, because of that, they might come to know that you're a good God, a great father, one that they can grow to love and trust and depend on. God, I pray that that would change our lives. That would change this church. God, it would change this community, this world. And that God, your kingdom would come here to earth. That your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.